Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Please join your heart with me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In that Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior, dear fellow saints of the Most High God, how would we like it if someone from Canada came into the United States and began to preach against our nation's moral decay and prophesy our impending doom? Or what if someone from Mexico crossed the border and began lecturing us on our immigration policy or lack thereof and about our treatment of immigrants, both legal and illegal. Well, that's exactly what happened in Amos's case. That's exactly what happened in Amos's case. And now you know or have a feel for the book of Amos. You see, he was a foreigner and worse, a southern kingdom rival from Judah. One could almost say an enemy at times to boot. The people in the northern kingdom of Israel used Amos's status as a foreigner as an excuse to ignore his message of judgment. No wonder that legend has it that Amaziah, the chief priest in Bethel, whom Amos attacks in chapter 7 of his book, is said to have attacked Amos and bludgeoned him to death with a club. And even if that's not the case, just hearing his message tells us that he was aptly named. Amos literally means a burden or a burden bearer. His prophetic role was certainly a burden to him. He lets us know that he didn't ask for this assignment. He was perfectly happy to be a shepherd and a dresser or caretaker of sycamore trees back home in Tekoa, a small village just southeast of Bethlehem. Amos had no prophetic credentials. He didn't even go to, much less graduate from, a school of the prophets. No, he was a hard-working, blue-collar type of guy. But God gave him this burden to preach doom and gloom to the kingdom of Israel. That's another reason Amos is aptly named. Of all the prophets, his message is the most foreboding. It's almost all doom and gloom, except for the last five verses. Only at the end does Amos bring a note of hope and blessing of redemption, of an enduring eternal time of merriment and joy, of promised restoration to a prosperous land. In true messianic fashion, Amos speaks of a land and time overflowing with an abundance of wine, shades of Cana, pointing them and us to the Christ and the messianic age to come. But Amos is no dummy. 
He begins with God's judgment against neighboring nations. He starts with Damascus or Syria, goes on to Gaza or Philistia, and then Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, even Judah. And then and only then, once he has them cheering, attaboy, Amos, does he in verse 6 of chapter 2 lower the boom on Israel for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Same formula that he has used against all the other nations to this point. Now there is dispute over what that phrase for three transgressions or for four actually means. But the most likely interpretation would seem to be that Israel was unrepentant. Amos is calling them on that impenitence, their unrepentant hearts and posture. So not for seven sins, but one sin, repeated over and over again in arrogant unrepentance, making their sin justifiable to themselves, expected, acceptable behavior, the norm, something they're proud of and even boasted about. Day after day, week after week, and they couldn't wait to get back to that business. Not that they weren't guilty of many other sins, as Amos goes on to list, but they were really all symptoms of the same malady. They wanted to get past the new moon and the Sabbath so that they could go back to cheating their neighbors and making their illegal and ungodly profit. And God was fed up. He directed his wrath against the privileged people, the cows of Bashan, those who were lying literally in the lap of luxury, who had no love for their neighbor, who took advantage of others, who only looked out for their own concerns. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Kind of sounds like the evening news. After hearing Pastor Ryan a few weeks back about the prophet Micah, I have no doubt that Amos sets the table for Micah. He's only a generation away from God's decrees coming to terrible fruition. And so Amos is pulling out all the stops to, in order to bring the people back, back to their senses, back to their knees, to repentance, to their God. For drunk on their own economic success and prosperity and intent on strengthening their own financial position, the people had lost the concept of caring for one another. They were self-absorbed and unabashedly not sorry for their self-interest. Many say that Israel then and America now are a lot alike. 
that America is getting to where Israel was if it isn't there already. And like Israel, our only hope is in the Lord, in the God who saves us, in the God we know in and through Jesus Christ. For there, in Jesus, we find forgiveness and grace for three transgressions and for four, and for any more that we come up with. Only there in Jesus is salvation and mercy offered and to be had. The miracle of God's grace, the message he seeks to convey, is that through it all and despite it all, all the sin and sinning on everyone's part, including yours truly, and yes, you too, God continues to offer forgiveness and salvation through him whom he has sent to be our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Israel's problem was that they were hypocrites. Their religion was a sham in order to cover up their sin. Their wealth was their idol, prosperity their game, and they were playing to win at all cost, at any cost, at others' cost. They invented any number of ways to sin. They trampled on the needy. They brought the poor of the land to an end. They sell wheat for sale so that they can make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. In other words, they couldn't wait for the Sabbath and other religious festival days to be over so that they could go back to business as usual, the business of making money at others, especially the poor's expense. They cheated, lied, used false weights, sold bad products. They levied corrupt fines, even put their neighbors into slavery in order to make them pay off the debt. More than any other biblical book, Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. It repeatedly points out the failure of God's people to fully embrace God's ideal of justice, and it challenges them to change. Amos's message is God's effort to rescue, reclaim, and restore his people to himself. Another 20 to 30 years, one more generation, and it would be too late. Over. Remember the timeline that we've been using. Amos falls at about 750 B.C. 722 B.C., Israel falls. Judgment and disaster are right around the corner. And so Amos pulls out all the stops and really lets them have it. Well, what about us? Especially we who have had God's grace and favor bestowed upon us through our baptisms from infancy. Barna, who has been polling Americans for a long time and American Christians, made this comment about us. He said, America's Christians' confession of and commitment to Jesus seems to be a mile wide and about an inch deep. Do we take God's favor for granted? Do we expect his grace no matter what? Do we turn a blind eye to others' suffering and need? 
Do we keep silent in the face of injustice, or worse, agree to it and even participate in it? Do we, like the priest and Levite in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, use more important things to do, like preaching, teaching, praying, and worshiping, to avoid displaying mercy and putting justice into practice, to excuse ourselves from taking the time to care for and help our neighbor, to share God's love in the living out of our lives? Do we find ourselves falling into the trap of making this an either-or rather than a both-and reality? Some things, it seems, never change. And just as human nature never changes, so God, thankfully, never changes either. He still has his heart open toward us. He never changes his mind. He never changes his will. He never changes his promises. God still calls for repentance, for change in human hearts and behavior, for only repentance will turn away God's wrath. God thunders at us from on high so that he can shout to us the victory of Easter morning. God proclaims his law so that he can declare his gospel grace, his mercy and forgiveness to his people then and now, to Israel and to us. Amos is filled with such calls. Seek the Lord and live. Seek God and good and not evil. Hate evil and love good. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That last reference, of course, made famous by the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It serves well as the theme for Amos, which could be summarized like this. All should treat each other responsibly, mercifully, and justly in accordance with God's word and will. And for us, that word, of course, was made flesh and came among us in order to show us God's mercy by taking God's just punishment for our sins upon himself on Calvary's cross. Great though your sin may be, God's mercy is greater. In Christ, because of Christ, you and I will not suffer its eternal consequences because Jesus bore that for us under God's justice poured out on him that fateful Good Friday. And because we won't suffer the same end as Israel, go into exile, because Jesus endured that exile when he was forsaken by his heavenly Father on Calvary, you and I can in mercy, can turn in mercy toward our neighbor and see to it, to the best of our ability, that she or he is treated justly by others and certainly by ourselves. In and because of Jesus, a change of heart is still possible, still takes place in us by the working and power of the Holy Spirit, still changes God's judgment from wrath to redemption, from justice to forgiveness. God's heart toward us, sinful though we be, is evident in all that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And when Christ returns, 
justice and righteousness will roll forth like an ever-flowing stream forever. Until then, you and I have his promise and power, as Paul tells us in today's epistle reading from Colossians, that we who have participated in Christ's death and resurrection through our baptism thereby have his presence and help to seek good and not evil, to hate evil and love good, and to establish justice in the gate, to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. May God grant it as we give all glory and praise to him. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all of our human understanding, will keep your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, your risen and reigning Lord and Savior. Amen.